This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Judges. Very rarely can a, an entire book of the Bible be summarized with an infographic. But Judges can. Uh, in one image, here's the book of Judges. Take a look. There it is. The entire book of Judges on one slide for you. The book of Judges is structured in such a way as a downward cycle. Things get worse and worse, but they repeat. There's repetition and things and degradation. Repetition and degradation. On the one hand, Israel starts by serving the Lord. They fall into sin and idolatry. Israel's enslaved. They cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel's delivered, and they start serving the Lord again. And then it starts over. Again and again and again. It's for that reason that I think Judges is perhaps one of the darkest books of the Bible. But the issue that we're going to look at today and wrestle with is how did they get to this point? More specifically, how does a generation cease to follow Jesus? That's the question we're going to ask. How does a generation cease to follow Jesus? Now, I realize that this can be a painful topic for some in our congregation to think about because you have young adult, adult children who are on the run. They're prodigals. I want to remind you as we work through this and keep keep all of this in mind, I want to remind you that our God is in the business of redeeming lost people. He's in the business of pursuing lost people. Don't give up on your prodigals. Continue to pray for them. The story of Judges is one that we need to listen to because we have an example here of degradation. A generation that ceases to follow Jesus. How did they end up getting to that place? There are three causes that contributed to the loss of a generation of God followers, and we're going to look at each of these. Here they are. First is half-hearted discipleship. The second is blindness to idolatry. The third is the gospel as facts to be memorized rather than a story to rejoice in. Three causes, we're going to look at Judges 1 and 2, three causes that contributed to the loss of an entire generation of God followers. First is half-hearted discipleship. Now, before Israel entered the promised land, way back in Deuteronomy 7, God instructed them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They were to show them no mercy. Why? God was concerned for the spiritual purity of his people. Conquering the land was not done for political or economic reasons, but spiritual reasons. If they don't do this, God said these people would turn their children away from him to serve other gods. God wanted them to establish a country where they would serve him fully, creating a nation where surrounding nations could see the true God through the lives of his people. Judges 1 tells us how Israel did at this task. Let me read some snippets from the first chapter. The Benjaminites 
did not drive out the Jebusites. How are we doing so far? Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, Ta'anak, nor Dor, or Ibleam, or Megiddo. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gazar. The verses go on. I'm going to stop there. You get the picture. Judges 128 is a summary verse. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. So if you read Judges 1, you see this theme. Israel did not drive out the Canaanites completely. They went halfway. It's half-hearted. Why? Why didn't they obey completely? Well, we've got a little bit of a hint in chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Okay, this is not letting us in on on, on Canaanite military technology. That's not why this is in the Bible. The statement is theological in nature. In Joshua 17, Joshua had already alerted them to the existence of iron chariots. He said, hello, just so you know, when we get in there, you're going to see these iron chariots. But he went on to say, but that's not going to be a problem because we're going to drive them out anyway. So what is this? What is this verse? What is chapter 1, verse 19? It's the excuse. It's the I can't excuse. God's people are saying, we can't. It's too difficult. God is saying all along, no, you can do it. Trust me. Obey me completely. God is asking too much of them from Israel's perspective. You cannot ask me to do that. You cannot ask me to climb that hill. You cannot ask me to take on that task. It's too difficult. It's too much. No. Do we ever struggle with that as the new covenant people of God? Do we ever struggle with that? We still face this challenge of being half-hearted disciples, of going halfway, of not obeying Jesus completely. In pastoral ministry, I've noticed three particular areas where we are prone to show halfway discipleship, half-hearted discipleship. The first is forgiveness. I just can't forgive him for what he did. I just can't forgive him for what he did. But Jesus commands us to forgive. Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story of a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. One of his servants owed him 10,000 bags of gold. He was brought before the king, and he was told that he, his wife, and his children would be sold to repay the debt. After hearing this, the servant dropped to his knees and began begging for mercy. The king took pity on him, and he canceled the debt. After the servant was released, he went out and found one of his fellow servants who also also owed him a debt in the amount of 100 silver coins. That's a drop in the bucket compared to 10,000 bags of gold. The servant grabbed him by the neck, began to choke him, and demand that he repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees, begged for mercy, but this other servant refused to to, to cancel the debt. He had him thrown in jail until he could, could repay it. Well, word of that thing got back to the king. The king called this servant in. He says, why, after having been forgiven a debt of enormous proportions, did you not forgive a smaller debt? In his wrath, the king had his servant handed over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. 
And then Jesus ends the story by saying this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Tough words. To receive God's forgiveness. To receive God's forgiveness. But refuse to forgive someone else. Is an abuse of his grace that he will not tolerate. Lack of forgiveness. Is half hearted discipleship. It's going halfway. When I say I can't forgive. What we're really saying. Is that we won't forgive. We want to hang on to our anger. We want to hang on to our bitterness. We want to hang on to our right to get even. All of it under the excuse of being unable to forgive. It's the first area where I see the Christian community going halfway. The second is difficult truth-telling. I just can't tell her the truth. I just can't tell her the truth. It would destroy her. Ephesians 4 says we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. When we don't, what are we doing? What we're really doing is excusing cowardice or pride under the umbrella of I can't. What we really mean is if I tell her that, she may not like me anymore. I would be humiliated. She'll be upset. And I'm not going to risk that cost. I would rather disobey and not speak the truth in love. This is half-hearted, halfway discipleship. third area where I see us falling short is in the area of temptation. I can't resist doing this even though I know it's wrong. Sin possesses addictive power. There's no question. It may be true that it would be difficult through sheer willpower to get free from addictive temptations, but what can we do? We can get help. We can admit our sin. We can humble ourselves. We can cry out to God for mercy and transformation. We can become accountable to someone. Remembering that God always gives us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know the passage. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. If we don't fight against temptation with all we have, then we're really showing our cards. In reality, here's what we're saying. We would rather keep on sinning in that way and excuse it with our inability to do anything else. It's halfway, half-hearted discipleship. And I tell you what, the younger generations watching us see this with vivid clarity. They see half-hearted discipleship clearly. Here's what happened with this generation. You started with a generation that had some commitment. It was replaced with complacency. And it ended in compromise. You started with a generation that had commitment. It was replaced by complacency, half-heartedness, which ultimately took its most mature form in compromise. One of the causes of losing a generation of God followers is halfway 
discipleship. Second is blindness to idolatry. When Israel entered Canaan, they did not come to a land where the people there were, were religiously indifferent or lukewarm. Canaan was a deeply spiritual land. Okay? They entered a formidable religious climate where allegiance to the gods of the land was strong. Additionally, Israel entered an exceedingly prosperous land. Remember, we read all about that. This land flowed with milk and honey. It's a way of saying this is a flourishing land. It's a prosperous land. They did not enter a war-torn nation struggling through grinding poverty. This was a prosperous land. Now, put those two things together. Put those two things together. Canaan is a deeply spiritual land committed to their gods, and it's simultaneously a land of prosperity. Step inside the sandals of an Israelite as you put those two conditions together. Do you see how it might have been difficult for Israel to conceive of God being God of this land where other gods ruled with apparent effectiveness? The prosperity of the land lulled them into a state of complacency. The book of Judges doesn't portray Israel's fall into idolatry as decisive, taking place overnight. It was a slow drift. Judges chapter 2, verse 11 Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Notice how evil is defined there, not committing heinous crimes, but falling into idolatry. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. The Baals, the various gods among them, were the saviors of the land. Israel found it hard to dispute the results of their rule and even more difficult to go against that tide. So why did they end up serving them? It's the dominant religious climate of the land. And the land seemed to be working quite nicely with those gods at the helm. In other words, Israel bought into a version of the good life that could be experienced only through service of those gods that provided that good life. In every generation, we have this. There are competing saviors that vie for our service. Competing gods that vie for our allegiance. That promise some sort of good life. Let me talk about one specifically. And that's money. Or the accumulation of it, or accumulation of assets and things. Trevin Wax recounts a story that's worth sharing at length that illustrates what I'm getting at here. He writes, Thanksgiving 2015, my sister Tiffany and her husband Brandon invited all the Wax family, parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and cousins to celebrate the holiday in their new home. For years, Brandon had exerted his energy in pursuit of his degree in medicine with its 80-hour work weeks and rigors of residency. In that time, Tiffany had given birth to three boys. Now, for the first time in their marriage, they were ready to put down roots. Brandon had begun his medical practice. They had just moved into a beautiful house up on a hill, a house they themselves had planned and built. At Thanksgiving, everything was decorated for Christmas. We spent a good portion of that weekend out on the patio watching the little kids play with the older kids, playing foosball and Legos in the upstairs bonus room. 
On the Friday after Thanksgiving, we gathered again at the house on the hill. The adults played games by the fireplace. The kids watched Elf upstairs. The house was filled with love and laughter and Thanksgiving leftovers. Monday morning, it was gone. While Tiffany was getting the boys ready for school, a gas leak led to a small explosion. I remember yelling right after the explosion, Brandon says, and I asked Tiffany, am I okay? My eyebrows were shortened, my eyelashes were gone, and my hair was singed. Right then, another explosion went off behind me, and we started yelling, get out of the house. Tiffany gathered the boys, raced downstairs, and dashed outside, where she and Brandon called 911 and waited for help. Within 10 minutes, I knew, Tiffany says. When I saw smoke coming out of the attic, Brandon says, I realized it's over, the house is gone. Soon flames were leaping out of the windows and the roof was engulfed in a cloud of thick black smoke. It was like a slow, painful death. You stand there and watch your house burn down for four hours and you can't do anything to stop it. After the investigation, the insurance company declared the house a total loss. So what happens when the American dream collapses into ash and rubble? From the world's perspective, losing your house and all your possessions is a terrible setback. Like getting knocked down several rungs on the ladder, you're climbing toward a life of ease and comfort. But what if we look at the ladder in light of the gospel? What if we tell our life story in a way that differs from the American dream? Not a story where we move from rags to riches but where we move forward or backward in terms of holiness. Brandon acknowledges that before the fire, he charted his life story according to the American dream. He said, I used to think of life as an upward line from point A to point B. My B, my point B was the house, a car, a good job, money for retirement. Point B is always better and it's always more. That's why at first it did feel like we were going backwards, like we had lost a year or more, Tiffany says. But after the fire, Brandon says, I realize that point B is not more money. Point B is Christ-likeness. It's holiness. The top of the ladder is not a house or money or job security, but God doing everything he can to make me more like Jesus. He cares more about my heart than he does my house. We always said the most important thing in life is our relationship with God, says Brandon. But deep down, you still think point B is the bigger house, the better job, the bank account, your independence. Life is all about point B, and God is along for the ride. The fire changed all that. Point B is different now. The latter is about becoming more like Jesus. As our conversation with Tiffany and Brandon comes to a close, my mind is spinning with points of application. Ever since I walked through the ruins of their house, I've been asking myself about my own house and my own possessions. Would I be okay without all this stuff? Tiffany shakes her head. That's not the right question. I'm a little taken aback. Why not? Because in your mind you assume, of course I'd be okay without this stuff. She's right. I do assume that. The lie is not that you would be okay without it. The lie is that you're going to be happier with it. 
Brandon nods. Yes, the question you should ask is not, would I be okay without this, but do I think I'll be happier with this stuff? That's a tougher question. It pinches. And suddenly I realize, like most people in this society, I'm just as liable as anyone else to believe the myth of accumulation. The longing and the lie are intertwined in my own heart. I may not believe the lie that money is all I need to make me happy, but I have fallen for the myth that money makes me happier. Tiffany pulls out her phone to show me something. Look at this, she says. On the day the bulldozers demolished what was left of the house, I checked one of my apps. One year to the day before the house was torn down, I wrote these verses from Philippians on my Facebook page. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Brandon says, that is the new point B. We live in a world where there are countless gods of the land that say to you, if you have me, you'll be happier. You're a parent, you're a grandparent, you work with students or kids, or you are a student or a kid. It's worth thinking carefully about the competing saviors in our land that proposition our kids daily. Just like the fruit in the garden, they're pleasing to the eye. They seem to serve a practical need. But lying underneath that is a trap and a snare. The third cause of this generation abandoning following the Lord is that they looked at the gospel as facts to be memorized rather than a story to rejoice in. In chapter 2, we read this. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnaharish, in the hill country of Ephraim, north north of Mount Gaash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now when it says there was a generation that didn't know the Lord or what he had done, it doesn't mean that they didn't know about the Exodus or the Red Sea or the Jordan River or, or, the, or Jericho. They knew about these events. They had the right information, but rather these saving events were no longer central and precious to them. This generation never learned how to revere and rejoice in what God had done. That fits our cultural context in southeast Wisconsin perfectly. Increasingly, we are seeing people who may have memorized the facts of the gospel. They've got them down. But they have not learned to rejoice in the story of the gospel. Our desire should be to see the next generation Know the gospel, not like they know two plus two equals four. That's not the kind of knowing I'm calling us to. The kind of knowing I'm calling us to is a knowing that looks at a sunrise over Lake Michigan and says, look at that. That's amazing. That's the kind of knowing the next generation needs to take in the gospel. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we not reduce the gospel as if it's facts to be memorized rather than a story to rejoice in? How do we do that? Let me give you three 
takeaways on how to do that. Number one, read the Bible as a story, not a textbook. The Bible is not a theological dictionary. It's a story. It's a story that tells us about a number of characters, starting with God. It's a story that tells us about who we are. It's a story that tells us about a problem that exists in the world. It's a story about what God has done and is doing to make it right. If we're going to learn to rehearse the gospel as a story to rejoice in more than facts to be memorized, we need to learn to read the Bible differently. Second, preach the gospel story to yourself daily. We've been in the Old Testament since September. There are two aspects to what we've seen so far that should stick out to you. Two of them. Two aspects to this story, which is the gospel story that should stand out above the rest. The first is that we human beings are prone to wander from God. You got that so far? Adam and Eve couldn't get it right. Cain couldn't get it right. Noah got it right for a while, and then he didn't anymore. Abraham equally was a mixed bag. Israel saved from oppression, but quickly becomes a society of complainers. Now here, Israel, a saved nation, has abandoned revering and rejoicing in what God has done and is whoring themselves after other gods. You get it? We are prone to wander. We are prone to rebel. So one aspect of the gospel story that you should be preaching to yourself on a daily basis is an unpopular one. It's an uncomfortable one. It's to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine. But the other aspect to the Old Testament story, which is the gospel story should be, that should stand out, is God's relentless pursuit of his people. The fact that the story didn't end after the Garden of Eden is remarkable. Have you thought about that? God had every right after the Garden of Eden to just throw in the towel and say, I'll oh, forget it. I, I don't need you anyway. He had every right to do that. He seems to have limitless patience with people who constantly fail him. He pursues them even though they want nothing to do with him. He bends over backwards to prosperously provide for them when they turn their backs on him. So the second aspect of the gospel story you should be preaching to yourself is a glittering diamond in light of the first. You should be preaching to yourself. Look yourself in the mirror. You should be saying to yourself, I'm more loved, valued, and cherished than I ever dared dream. Story after story in the Bible conveys this overarching theme. God in love, relentlessly pursuing people who make it a habit of cheating on them. This is something you have to preach to yourself daily if you're going to rehearse the gospel as a story to rejoice in. And third, sing the truths of the gospel into your heart. The Bible employs numerous literary genres. One of them is poetry. Why? Poems are meant to evoke feeling. When we talk of revering and rejoicing in the gospel, we are talking about emotions. We're talking about feeling. You heard me quote this guy before. He's got a great name. His name is Yip Harburg. He wrote all the lyrics for the classic The Wizard of Oz. Yip says it well. He says, words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. 
Singing with heart, soul, mind, and strength helps us process the emotional dimensions of truth. The longest book of the Bible, Psalms, collection of poems, most of which would have been sung, contained in the Psalms is the gospel. They sing the gospel to feel its truth. To rehearse the gospel as a story to rejoice in. This is why I want us to be the singingest congregation in the Milwaukee metro area. It's not a contest. It's for the sake of our good. Five years ago, Time Magazine released an article entitled, How Singing Changes Your Brain. It details the science behind why singing helps alleviate anxiety, stress, how it helps lessen the effects of depression and loneliness. Think about it. God's not even entering into this research. There is no gospel in this research, and yet the science is leading them to conclude this has tremendous benefits for people. Now, combine that, the act of singing, the benefits of it, the science of it, with gospel truth. Sing gospel truth into your heart. And what happens to a community? What happens to a community? You watch. When we learn to sing the gospel into our hearts, when we learn to rejoice in the gospel story, when we learn to rejoice in the gospel story, you watch us perpetuate generations of Jesus followers. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray for the future of the church, that the generations would be raised up to follow you, love you, serve you, worship you. Jesus, I pray for those of us who are even now laying the foundation the next generation will live upon. I pray we would take seriously what complete and wholehearted discipleship entails, and we would have the grace and courage to address those areas of our lives that have been half-hearted. As the church, we want the world to see you through us, to see you in the beauty of human relationships, to see you in the purity of our faith, to see you in the joy we take in the gospel story. Jesus, I pray that you would do this in us and among us to perpetuate generations of people who follow hard after you. It's for your sake we pray all these things. Amen.